The following episode of the 9pm Edict is being streamed live. As always, it will fail to live up to its promises. It contains strong language and disturbing sexual imagery. Thursday the 11th, no, 10th of December. I don't even know what time it is. This is terrible business. The world is falling apart, people. It's dissolving into a replay of the Middle Ages. Crusader Rabbit is off his leash. There's more foam coming out of his mouth than a rabbit dog full of dishwashing liquid. Even ABC Radio National's normally innocuous breakfast presenter Fran Kelly is losing the plot. Oh, well, maybe he's right. Donald Trump's right. Maybe we should put get a Muslim database of all Muslims having to register their identification. Wow. And the theme run out, Fran Kelly off the leash doing the full Trump. You tell him, Fran, this is the 9pm Garden of Hate without the music bed because I fucked it up. When I was listening to uh, Radio National Breakfast the other morning, or RN Breakfast as they say, apparently they can't deal with long words, um, Fran Kelly's on summer holidays, so there's uh, some bloke on and he was talking. I, I misheard someone say global warming with as global worming. And, and now that I think about that, this could be a sensible strategy. And uh, as uh, Andy Nicholson pointed out, uh, Radio National is in, in the, the pay of big nematode. Look, I'm all for nuanced and intelligent political debate. I'm a big fan of it. But when I woke up this morning and checked into Twitter, I found that overnight I'd been linked into this stupid fight between pro and anti-Trump forces who are, you know, one side doing the whole Islam will eat your breakfast cereal and cause leprosy. Uh, and the other side, I don't really know what the other side were wanting to do except kind of to go that Trump is worse than Hitler, and perhaps he is, but just the the kind of level of intelligence that that was in this conversation left me gobsmacked. One of the tweets, and look, I won't say who it was just to protect them, really, because this is just stupid. They said, quote, you can't be both Christian and violent, 1 John 3, 6, meaning first book of First Gospel according to John chapter 3, verse 6. So, okay, you can't be Christian and violent. I mean, even the the most cursory look at history would tell you that, like, what? That's not true. I mean, there have been many violent Christians over the years. And then I looked up the passage. First book, John chapter 3, verse 6. It says, quote, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So it's kind of this this really fuzzy statement that, hey, you're not you're not really a Christian if you keep sinning. And and they have conflated that with just violence as a general concept. Now, I know that that was kind of you know what that Jesus bloke was on about, right? He he was he was on about peace and being nice to each other and tolerant and all that stuff, which modern day Christians seem to have forgotten. The other thing that struck me as interesting about that quote was that you can't be both Christian and violent. I mean, you can obviously. They're just confusing the word can't with shouldn't. So I've been listening to quite a bit of this stuff lately. And uh, back in uh, the first uh, part of November, there was an excellent special episode of uh, the On The Media podcast, with, uh, which was entitled Two Angry Men. There will be in due course a link on the podcast website where Alec Baldwin, you may know him as an actor. He's also an activist, for want of a better word. He uh, also hosts a program called Here's the Thing. Anyway, he was speaking to on the media presenter Bob Garfield in a in a special episode called Two Angry Men. And he was he was talking about uh, the, that whole process by which the the right-hand end of politics in the United States has created its own fantasy world news universe. And of course Fox News is not the only one. In spite of the fact 
that Ailes and his group have come up with a place for people to vent their spleen. The uh, people still rely on you to tell the truth. They want you to tell them what's going on. In my lifetime, the number of people who want what you said, they want an articulation of their political view of the world to medicate them with. They wanted some pre-digested pablum that Fox provides for their audience. You know, there is no liberal equivalent. Who was that? Alan, what was his name? Alan Coles? Alan? Alan Combs. I mean, good God, that poor guy. What a thankless job that was to be the liberal half of that show with that horse's ass Hannity. I mean, who's a bigger horse's ass than Sean Hannity? He's the, he's the greatest horse's ass in the history of media. Let me ask you a question, Alec. Um, how would you characterize Sean Hannity? <clears throat> well, as they taught me in Washington when I went to college, I would employ the language of the uh, 19th century legislators. I have the least amount of high regard for my colleague <laughs> from Fox News. That's a lovely line from Alec Baldwin there. And... This urge to have someone on the left-hand side of politics telling the truth, just just calling it how it is, um, I'd like to see more of it because there is this sense that if you straight up call a liar a liar, if you just straight up say, you're wrong, Mr. Trump, you're wrong, President Trump, as I said last time, get used to saying it, people – then they just say, oh, liberal media of bias, and, and they cave in. I, I think this has happened with the ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. They have become so um, worried about being accused of being left-wing biased. Did I get that grammar right? Well, close enough. That, that they're afraid to just call it straight, which is why I was Interested to to see today that BuzzFeed uh, has been calling Trump, quote, a mendacious racist. And they were called out on this and they have actually said, no, this is consistent with our goal of objectively reporting the facts because there are situations in which Donald Trump has objectively lied and he has said things which are, by their definition, racist. So BuzzFeed is quite happy calling Trump a mendacious racist. Someone else called Trump clearly out of his mind, although that was London Mayor Boris Johnson. So, well, I suppose he'd know, wouldn't he? I was also intrigued to see uh, a plea from the Twitter account Gonzo Hacker who says, and, and I think this is a fair point, who will speak for the ignorant among us? Who will be the voice of those that don't understand what they're saying? Well, that's Trump really, isn't it? And then as Gonzo Hacker tweeted, Trump scans the news eagerly. I did it. I'm free. He suspends his campaign and falls asleep on a pile of models lightly dusted with cocaine. <laughs> I think this is going magnificently. All of the people who said Trump uh, would lose uh, his popularity uh, are being proven wrong currently because his popularity is just going up and up. I think this is magnificent. And thank you to the wonderful Hugh Atkin. We can now play a fanfare. Trump, 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 Trump. It's the summer of Trump. Trump predicted it. Trump's really smart. Trump is right. It was Trump. I'll take the credit. They need Trump. Trump, I like you. I love Trump. Trump is my all-time hero. As Trump, I can say. The only thing constant is Trump. It's all Trump all the time on television. You OD on Trump. Don't you dare say that about Donald Trump. Trump doesn't make it. Won't that be a terrible thing? Trump. Do you want a rock star? Kanye West loves Trump. 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 Is that enough, Mr. Trump? Nope. Everyone say Trump. 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 Ah, what magic days we're living in. What magic days indeed. You're actually going to do it, America. I am so proud of you crazy kids. Uh, the cybers have been in the news a bit too. Uh, the whole speculation in the last few days of who is the inventor of Bitcoin uh, that's centred around an Australian uh, information security uh, practitioner is too strong, but a bloke connected with the community perhaps. Uh, Craig S. Wright, 
Some news stories, those in Wired and Gizmodo, are saying, ah, yes, he is Satoshi Nakamoto, the mysterious creator of Bitcoin. Others, such as uh, Fusion and um, one other, uh, are saying, well, no, maybe not. We shall see. That will be interesting. Uh, There was news this week that some, quote, cybersecurity experts, unquote, in the United Kingdom are now billing £10,000 a day, which I suppose makes them half a QC or something like that. Um, There is a massive skill shortage in the cybersecurity realm. Uh, In fact, if you haven't listened yet to uh, the documentary I made for ABC Radio National's Future Tense uh, the other week, Go back and listen to that. Uh, There's some interesting comments. But with all of this emphasis on the cybers, some of it really is getting out of hand. There was a headline this morning, I think it was, quote, pirate hackers can easily spy on ships through insecure black boxes. And this, this story raised the point that... You know, ships carry a black box, same as aircraft. They they record conversations on the bridge and navigation settings and things like that. And these boxes are not very secure, but the worry was, oh, yes, they're, they're spying on cargo ships. Um, now, I do grant you that there is a potential here for tampering with that black box data, and that is a, a, a worry. But, guys, cargo ships are not trying to be stealthy, right? They're big fucking boxes of metal with navigation lights and they're putting out radar signals and they've got transponders reporting their location. So spying on cargo ships, for fuck's sake, there's there's a website you can go to to look up where every cargo ship on the planet is at any given point. Assets. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. Welcome to The Edict. This podcast is, of course, made possible by you, the listeners, through your subscriptions and uh, one-off contributions. This episode, it's thanks for another generous contribution from Network Presence. Network presence, good people, I promise I'll do what you've contributed specifically for me to do very, very soon. That sounds cryptic, but uh, we'll get to that. Now, in this episode, I'm also trying to get through some of the sponsored content that I have to get to you uh on the basis of the 9pm Urgent Hardware Refresh, which was a couple of months ago now, and I'm speaking to you through the hardware that you refreshed, and thank you very much, but I'm going to get about half of them done this time, so it's time for some... Casual verbaling. And the first casual verbaling goes to Jason Languidour. He's one of the B-grade evangelists for media freedom who contributed to the 9pm Urgent Hardware Refresh. Jason Languidour... I appreciate your contributions to media freedom, even though your legs are utterly inadequate. I have seen his legs. I know other people who have seen Jason Langenauer's legs, and they really are a disgrace. Just fucking awful. The knees, in particular, are cause for concern. My advice to Jason Langenauer is do not wear shorts. Thank you also to Rash's Moustaches, who is so committed to freedom that he chooses to live in a city that is completely free of ethics and culture just so he can be the standout little brilliant fucking media evangelist that he is. I speak, of course, of the city of Perth, whose main product is dirt and narcissism. I've been to Perth. I've seen the dirt, and it's very dirty indeed. And also thank you to David Cake, who is Chair of Electronic Frontiers Australia. Mr Cake has put his own reputation on the line, indeed his own ill-managed beard on the line, in support of media freedom 
in the form of a bunch of anarchists. I had the pleasure of being on a panel uh, at the launch of the Sydney chapter of Electronic Frontiers Australia uh, recently, and uh, David Cake, your beard is a disgrace. It's time also for some... Tongue lashings. For the A-grade evangelists for media freedom who have contributed even more, it's a tongue lashing to Trent Yarwood. Thank you, sir. Dr. Trent Yarwood, who is apparently an infectious diseases physician in a public hospital. I am just wondering how many of these diseases are investigated personally by Dr. Trent Yarwood and how many of them involve some kind of probing up the jacksy. Because I've seen what happens in public hospitals and probing up the jacksy is a common and all too frequent activity. I mean, some people enjoy that sort of thing, obviously. And I, I would just like to know how Trent Yarwood, Dr. Trent Yarwood, proposes to take care of this. Thank you also to Tristan, Tristan, I'll say that again, edit that out. Thank you also to Tristan Rayner, editor of Techly, for his contribution. Uh, I'm a bit worried uh, because uh, Mr. Rayner is so committed to uh, media freedom that not only does he support this podcast, he wrote in a, a, an article this week, quote, one of Australia's most savvy and savage writers on these issues, that is, the issues of innovation, is Stilgarian. His long-running commentary on how startup pop culture is overtaking every conversation about kickstarting science and engineering is well worth reading when considering these reforms. Thank you, Mr. Rayner. Reading his thoughts on the finer details in the announcement, that is, Malcolm Turnbull's innovation statement, over the next few days is sure to be insightful. I will, uh, thank you, Mr. Rayner, I will uh, give you benefit of my insight later in this podcast. And thank you also to A-grade evangelist for media freedom, Oberon's Ghost. Ghost? Hmm. Pronunciation is defeating me this evening. Thank you, Oberon's Ghost. She has a degree in classics and she is Greek, so she knows about media freedom in the form of freedom to display enormous phalluses on everyday household objects. The ancient Greeks were so into media freedom, they would sodomize their own students, an activity which is frowned upon these days, but not frowned upon by the actual creators of Western civilization itself. So that's something to think about, because if the ancient Greeks were running Victorian England, people would have been drinking their tea from a teapot with five cunts. Society ladies would be sitting in a circle licking the leaves from some sort of chubby, hypersaphic porcelain pleasure sphere, and the gentlemen would have been looking on at a discreet distance and noting, oh yes, the geometric proportions of the, uh, the, the spouts and the tongues coincide with the ratio of the orbits of Venus and Mercury, and then they'd chuff another canvas sack full of ether. That's what would have happened, and that would have been utter media freedom. The other way in which you can contribute to the ongoing maintenance of this podcast is by injecting your brain. And you can do that by sending an audio comment. You uh, can go to the website and look up how to do that. But you basically send me an audio file or phone one of the numbers or VoIP services and leave voicemail. Uh, and today I'm very pleased to have received a thoughtful observation uh, recorded a few weeks ago now from Ruben Shader. So I was sitting at Epping train station last night in um, suburban Sydney and I saw all of these billboards for tutoring and for HSC study guides and uh, colleges and cram schools. It, it was like the entire tunnel was just advertising you are going to fail the HSC if you just rely on your school education. 
you don't want to you don't want to disappoint your parents, right? Your you don't want to be a a, um, a loser. You want to you want to succeed and be the best. You need our services. It it struck me as a very uh, parasitic, very um, predatory sort of thing. I mean, and they were all jazzed up with lots of happy sort of, oh yes, you're going to succeed and everything. But that's really what it is: preying on the insecurity and of of people. It, who are already sort of in an uh, emotionally fragile state, what with all of the teenage um, uh, emotions and the hormones and all of that sort of stuff. Um, basically, uh, the reason why I brought that up, um, despite what my accent may suggest, uh, I grew up in Singapore. So my father moved over there when I was a, a wee little kid, and I've only just moved back to the fatherland a few years ago. And... That sort of culture really is the norm over there. I mean, people over there study like there's no tomorrow. It's all that they do. They they will meet up at Starbucks at midnight at one of the 24-hour coffee shops over there, mostly so that they don't have to be in the same tiny HDB flat as the rest of their family for that time of night. And even then, they get their laptops out, and they have Facebook open in one tab, and their homework and their study materials in the other. And it's it's this really pervasive sort of um, idea over there that you must succeed at all costs. And there is real societal pressure over there, uh, to the point where, in quite a terrifying way, my family friend over there used to work for the public transport department for the Singapore government, and he said that, like clockwork, when those A-level exam results came out, uh, their equivalent of the HSC, the suicide rate on the Singapore MRT network would spike. I mean, you think about that for a second, where you're putting p- children in a situation where they feel like ending their lives is the only viable course of action, rather than admitting to their parents that they got a 98 instead of a 99. And so, as kind of an Australian who's not really an Australian, who's moved back here, sort of seeing Australia from the outside in, and learning about all your ways, and how I'm supposed to like sports ball, and all these other things, um, there's... There's a part of me that just... I saw those billboards in Epping Station and I just froze. It terrified me. Like, why are we encouraging this sort of stuff here? And is this a recent thing or is it something that's only happened... I mean, I suppose uh, Epping and Chatswood and Eastwood, these places are predominantly um, Chinese-Australian, so maybe that it is the same kind of cultural thing. But good grief... And another little tidbit which I found out about Australia since moving back here. Um, So our government pays for private schools, or at least funds them. I've seen a few people on Twitter talking about this, and uh, my handle is Rubenerd, R-U-B-E-N-E-R-D, if I I may advertise myself. Um, The... The consensus seems to be, and it, it, to me, it's like it's it's the most tortured example of mental gymnastics I've ever seen. But that we have to have the government helping to fund private schools, because if you don't, more people will be needing to go to public schools. Sounds kind of like we should be subsidizing caviar and foie gras because if we don't, the rich people will start fighting for the dirt cheap food that poor people have to eat. What kind of a contrived, tortured BS example is that? But apparently enough people really believe that. So, I mean, personally, it seems like if you want to have an egalitarian society, you should just make public schools better, right? I don't know. Do, still get anyone on the, the edict? Uh, I, I'm really struggling with these. Um, th- thanks for letting me contribute. Well, my pleasure, Ruben, and uh, thank you for a number of thoughtful points there. One, I, I will say the observations about massive overemphasis on school results leading to suicide 
was something I did touch upon uh, a few episodes ago in response to an ABC TV documentary which showed what is happening in Korea at the moment, in uh, South Korea, Republic of Korea, where the situation you described as happening in Singapore is even more pronounced. And as a result, uh, Korea now has the highest youth suicide rate on the planet. This does not strike me as a sensible way to run a society. Uh, Also, the idea of, uh, yes, public schools versus private schools. I'm kind of on the uh, this idea of, well, why does a private school get any money at all? That's the whole point. It's a, a private school for those that choose for whatever reason not to use the stools, the schools provided by the state. I don't know. But if you have any uh, responses to Ruben or indeed have your own thoughts, and I do encourage you to have your own thoughts, provided they're broadly in line with my own, obviously, uh, do send them in. Details on the website. <coughs> Elephant stamp time! <coughs> Elephant stamp time. In most episodes of this podcast, not all, I do sometimes say each episode of this podcast, I give elephant stamps of approval. It's not really, it's, it doesn't happen every time. This podcast is really quite unreliable. I give elephant stamps of approval to people who have been exceptional in the category of thinking. And um, I have two today. Excuse me, I must do a bit of a cough thing. (coughs) Right. Terrible business. Uh, To this time, uh, one goes to a person who shall remain anonymous, uh, but uh, they'd responded to a tweet of someone oh, now how did this work I, I wrote these notes a couple of weeks back and I'm just trying to remember what the fuck I meant oh okay yeah 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 there was a tweet about the global SME finance forum 2015 and this person on Twitter asked what does SME stand for now SME stands for small and medium enterprise right so like SMB, small and medium business. And I accept that not everyone knows this. It's kind of business management slash public policy jargon when you're talking about SMEs. But maybe this person should have known this because their Twitter bio said they were a project manager who has just graduated with a master's in business. A person with a master's degree in business does not know what SME stands for. That's pretty good. Elephant stamp for you, anonymous person. Uh, The second elephant stamp goes to the British government. And the actual quote has disappeared in front of me. But if you have a look around, you will find that the British government has recently put out some warning signs that could indicate your child is at risk of being radicalised and becoming an internet criminal. And one of the signs is they are interested in coding and have their own educational material, as in stuff that wasn't handed out by a school, but they have chosen to explore a subject of interest on their own on the internet. This is apparently a sign that they could be at risk of becoming a cyber criminal. Or, British government, it could just mean that they're curious. It could just mean that they're intelligent and are bored with the slow pace of what is happening at their school because a school has to cope with everyone in the class, including those fucktards up the back like you, Stephen Burns. Oh, God, that's memories going back a bit. British government, elephant stamp for you. You fucktards. Coming up very soon is the next public house forum. A few weeks ago, when it was in October, actually, so several weeks ago now, there was held out at uh, the Australian Arms Hotel in Penrith in the west of New, uh, in the west of Sydney. 
here in New South Wales. Um, the 9pm public house forum, which was a forum in a public house, etc., etc. You listen to this podcast, you know what this goddamn thing is, right? Well, there is going to be another one, and it is going to be on Saturday week, the 19th of December. So not this Saturday, the Saturday after. If you go to my website at stillgerian.com, you'll be able to find a, a post which links through to the place where you can book free spots to come and have lunch. So it's in the afternoon. It will be held in Stanmore, in the inner west of Sydney, at the Salisbury Hotel, which has a Greek-slash-Australian kitchen. And we'll um, look, lunch starts at about midday, I suppose. Perhaps they open the kitchen earlier. Um, uh, from about one o'clock, I'll be setting up stuff. We'll start recording at two o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, the podcast itself will then be turned around and put on my website on the Sunday, the 20th. But it will be like the last one in that uh, there will be a way in which you can buy questions to ask the panel, uh, and I'll sort that out in the next couple of days. There will be four people on the panel, and I can tell you now that I have confirmed Two of them. One of them is that wonderful uber geek Kate Carruthers, who's currently with the University of New South Wales, but seems to know everyone who is smart and funny and will be excellent to talk to about the issues of the day. So Kate Carruthers is one of the panellists. And also joining us is Jazz Twemlow, comedian, columnist for The Guardian. Uh, he was one of the, the writers and occasional on-camera people for ABC Television's The Roast. Uh, I had the very great pleasure of working with Jazz at uh, a conference recently. Jazz Twemlow will be joining us as well. Well, I, I think that's what's going to happen. I just got an email this morning from Jazz Twemlow saying, Jazzy wants to play play. I'm fairly sure that means he's going to join me on the podcast. I'll... I'll clarify that and get back to you. But go to my website, Saturday the 19th of December at the Salisbury Hotel in Stanmore. And uh, look, just just sort yourselves out and get there. Two minutes hate for an anonymous supporter. Ah, uh, yes. Time for some two minutes hate. Back when I did the 9pm urgent hardware refresh, the people who contributed most, the media freedom thought leaders, would get themselves two minutes of my wisdom upon the subject of their choice. This is going to be interesting now because I'm going to try and get through four of them and I haven't prepared as much as I had with some of those in the past. Possibly should have some more wine. Hang on. Mm, that really is quite nice. This is a um, Canara Sofiel's Gift, Mount Gambia Riesling, a 2010 vintage. Really, really quite nice. It's quite oaky. Uh, now that it's breathed a bit, it's it's just such a complex flavour. Um, you know how with a Riesling, um, like a particularly an aged Riesling, that just as you open it, it sometimes got those kind of petrolly overtones. It's a bit, you know, you just need to let that, you know, evaporate off. Let that breathe. Get those complex and quite nasty esters out of the the system, and then you can. Uh, and then you can kind of appreciate this. Um, sorry, I've just paused for a moment and struck with the image of Jason Langenauer having tentacles instead of legs. Sorry, where were we up to? Ah, yes, we were up to... Two minutes hate for an anonymous supporter. Not everyone wished to reveal who they were. But uh, this particular supporter um, wanted me to talk about things that just work, such as why I didn't and won't buy an Android phone. Well, dear anonymous supporter, I will say 
that I have bought an Android phone, but only under duress. Now, here's, here's the thing. These are the two great um, forces, aren't they? It's, it's Apple's iOS, the iPhone environment, and it's Google's Android environment with the hardware made by anyone who, you know, basically turns up on the day and, and knows how to fill in a purchase order. There is also Windows Phone, and uh, I will say that Windows Phone is actually kind of a really, really nice operating system, but who the hell makes the apps, right? You're stuck with this limited range of things. There's a whole bunch of stuff that you simply can't get for Windows Phone, and therefore, uh, provide you want to limit your life to, to that tiny world, go for it. Um, it's actually very good. But Android is a fucking disaster area. Now, I had been using Android phones for quite some years. I, uh, Galaxy, Samsung Galaxy, the original one or something, I don't know, I got one. The thing about Android vendors is they hand out phones to journalists. So if you, uh, you know, are happy to play the, oh yeah, gadget review and play game, you can have Android phones coming out of every fucking orifice that you could imagine as tight as tight as they go and as phone sizes have increased obviously the the pleasure slash pain uh, combination associated with the orifice aspect of the android phone has increased substantially but the rounded corners do help and you, you know you lube it up and you get the phone but you know in a previous episode i spoke at length about the utter stupidity of the logic of the back button in android even more of a concern is the fact that unless you happen to buy the devices that are managed directly by um, Google itself, that is the Nexus devices, you're fucked. You are absolutely fucked because no one distributes the security updates in a timely fashion because they want to send you another phone. And they've also got to coordinate three players, right? Okay, so Google does an update to the core Android operating system, but then every fucking phone vendor makes up their own stupid version of Android because, oh, yeah, we want to be utterly cool and differentiate ourselves from everyone else, so we'll make some half-assed fucking thing and stick that on your phone, which we won't maintain. And then... Of course, you buy your phone from a telecommunications company who wants to put their logo on it and their stupid half-assed video streaming service and directory, like this undeletable crap, and they don't have a system either. So you're left with this whole, oh, vulnerability discovered in an Android, and Google patches it, and everyone else goes, Meanwhile, every fucking criminal and nation state and half-assed kitty hacker on the planet has bloody pwned you from arsehole to breakfast time. Or does Apple just fix it? Well, actually, they don't, do they? I, I will talk about Apple's um, policies in, in these matters another time, but because of all that Android upfuckness, I recently switched to an iPhone myself, paying my own good money to do so. So there you go. Two minutes hate for Peter Sandilands. Peter Sandilands wishes me to uh, point out that Point Products as a security panacea, well, they're crap, aren't they? Here's what we mean by Point Products, that is endpoint protection. That is basically software that you run on your own devices to protect them from the malwares. If the malware has got all the way onto your fucking device, it's already passed through so many layers of potential security protection that other people could have deal dealed with I might give up on grammar. 
Like, but that's the basic point, isn't it? Endpoint protection is like trying to protect yourself against the invading, uh, what's old enough in history, the Napoleonic army by getting all of your infantry and encasing them in stone blocks. You know, I mean, endpoint protection, right? Oh, we, well, you're citizens, actually, isn't it? It's, oh, we don't wish Napoleon's army to harm our citizens, so we will kind of put our citizens into stone blocks. We'll just kind of wrap them in that. That'll fucking work, won't it? But for so many years, the information security industry has treated it like that. Oh, just get endpoint protection for all your endpoints. You know, the rest of your fucking network can be like a sewer of diseased porridge soup um, toxic stuff. Basically like the stuff that comes out of Bronwyn Bishop's mind before they drain her face each morning, apply her makeup, put that rigor mortis fucking smile on her face and, and, and kind of wheel her out on the forklift of life. That's what endpoint security is, Peter Sandlin's. That's what it is. Two minutes hate for Paul Davis. Paul Davis has made the observation, quote, battery life, unquote. Yep. There are two great con jobs going down with this mobility mobile broadband revolution. One is data. Two is battery life. Every fucking ad from these cunts shows a bunch, like, like, like for example, a bunch of teenage girls on the bus home from whatever whatever kind of cheap leg opener wine drinking session they've been at. And they're all happy and dancing. They're, like these girls, they're never fucking, oh, yeah, God, yeah, Sharon, give us a fucking another wine, you cunt. It's never like that, is it? They're all these happy, smart. Like, how do they do it? How do telecommunications companies manage to make an ad where these girls, I was about to say something sexist, um, are so happy and pristine at the end of the night? I mean, they're not, right? Have you seen the kind of people who pour out of these clubs at two o'clock in the morning? They look worse than I do, and that's saying something. These pristine girls having partied all night, like they're, they're watching video clips on their phone on the bus, so then they get home and they're just constantly watching streaming video on their phones. Do you know what happens if you do that? Telstra sodomizes you with a barbed wire invoice. All the way up. Five rows of the damn thing and it's electrified. That's not how it works, people. Those ads are not how it works. And I shouldn't pick on Telstra there because they all do it. They all show you the freedom of mobile broadband going continuously. Something that's just not possible. Unless these girls are selling their Boxes unprotected at 500 bucks an hour in the back alleys outside the club before they get the bus home. Then you can do it, right? So what the telecommunications companies are doing is promoting unprotected sex work. That's what's really going down here, isn't it? The other thing is that, of course, you know, your battery will run flat if you trial that. Pointless. Won't work. I mean... Paul Davis is right. Battery would be flat before the end of the night. Two minutes hate for an anonymous supporter. This is a different anonymous media freedom thought leader who wishes me to speak for two minutes on the impact and future of residential internet upload speeds in Australia. 
There's an easy way. I can just sit back here and laugh for the first 90 seconds. <laughs> Residential internet upload speeds in Australia. <laughs> fucking moron there's no such thing there are no upload speeds in australia the whole point of the internet in australia is to watch foxtel didn't you see malcolm turnbull launch the coalition's broadband strategy he did it from foxtel studios how much more fucking blatant can you be you don't need upload speeds your job is not to contribute to the world, you residential fucking worms. Your job is to sit there and absorb the video messages. In the film Clockwork Orange, at least they had to prop your eyes open with those little metal clip things and force you to watch the video clips. Now you pay for it. You fucking pay for it yourself and they still put ads in it. And you still pay through the nose by world standards for internet speeds. And they're shit. I mean, if the internet is a series of tubes, which it is, the purpose of this tube is to feed the stuff into you. It's kind of like a giant digital douche. And you don't get to do the reverse douche, people. You do not get to do the reverse douche. Okay? You are being douched. You do not get to reverse douche anyone else, no matter how many fucking followers you have on YouTube. So thank you, anonymous contributor, anonymous media freedom thought leader, but you don't get to do the reverse douche. Time now for The Arch Window with Nicholas Fryer. I do need to point out that this particular uh, episode of The Arch Window was written and recorded 10 days ago. Time may have eroded some of the references. Consider yourself warned. There's some weird shit going down, and I don't think I can cope. For two years, Australia enjoyed the national political equivalent of sharing a house with a lemur with an occasional meth habit. Every morning, popping open a browser or turning on the radio was like doing the quick circuit of the house to see what had transpired during the night. Often enough, the answer was very little. Not that teaspoons had been swapped for the forks or the toaster was upside down, but the place was still recognisably a house and the normal protocols of life could be observed. Some mornings, however, the washing machine wouldn't work, and on inquiry it would turn out that that was because the motor had been removed and placed in the toilet, which had then been set on fire and mailed to Bhutan. Honestly, there were days I expected Radio National to tell me that while I slept the government had criminalised possession of wood and then declared war on Narnia. So don't get me wrong, I was as glad as anyone about the change of leadership, even if, at times, Malcolm Turnbull seems a bit more prime motivational speaker than prime minister. His bouncing on the balls of his feet as he gushes over the marshmallow wonderfulness that it is in this dawn to be alive, and Australian, gets a bit much at times. He sometimes reminds me of a 16-year-old who's fallen madly and hopelessly in love with Jesus and just can't wait to tell you all about it. A nice change from old stop-the-scourge-of-death cult with his flag fetish, but not exactly what you need on a Sunday morning as you're hunting for the aspirin and hoping that the dim memory of pouring vodka into the cat's bowl as a result of a drunken bet is as unreliable as the rest of your recollection about the last ten hours. So the (coughs) change of tone has been welcome but some of the more recent developments have convinced me that something deeply odd is happening. I was listening to the radio a week or so ago, just after the attacks in Paris, and I heard the Prime Minister of Australia, on the floor of Parliament, say something measured and nuanced about the appropriate response to the atrocity. No promise to bomb anyone, 
now instantly granting the security services the right to lie under my bed at night and listen to me bitch about the neighbour's leaf blower. Nothing. I wish I hadn't been carrying plates at the time, because I walked into a door. There were nice plates, too, only bought a week earlier. And then, a few days later, I listened to the Federal Finance Minister respond to a proposal on tax reform by the Premier of my own state, a man from the other side of party politics, by welcoming the contribution from, and I quote, a leader of Mr Wetherill's calibre. I was so astonished that I dropped the aspirin bottle, and the last pill rolled across the floor, where it was quickly snuffed up by a distinctly seedy-looking cat. I needed advice. The following day, I ran into my old mate Sandy, who's the hamster that Corey Bernardi keeps in his rectal cavity, purely for professional purposes. Sandy had popped her head through the senatorial sphincter to tell me about something she'd read in New Scientist, and I took the chance to ask her if I was hallucinating. She assured me that I wasn't, but I'm not so sure. As I write, the Paris Climate Confab is just about to kick off. By the time this goes to air, as we old radio hands say, it'll all be over, or at least well advanced. Suffice to say that, if in the intervening time we've committed ourselves to increasing emissions by burning down our remaining wildlife, while sad, a part of me will welcome the confirmation that my apparent psychosis had at least the virtue of transience. If, instead, a representative of the Australian political wing of News Corp has got up on stage and behaved like we actually live on this planet, then I'll know I'm in real trouble. I mean, what next? Christ, that other chap. Thingo. You know, the puzzled-looking bloke that Tanya Plibersek carries around in front of her to prevent being hit in the face by an unexpected election. He might actually say something about policy. If that happens, you'll find me at the Margaret Tobin Centre carefully reading the instructions about how to use the bedpan, and the sign on the door will make it very plain that I've already been disturbed quite enough. Innovation, 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 nimble, agile, disrupt innovation, innovation, nimble, 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 nimble. I have written a thing this week at ZDNet about the nimbling of Australia by Prime Minister of Nimbledon. Ah, Malcolm, I just... Nimbledon. Let me just write that down. Nimbledon. Okay. This innovation thing is really a crock of shit, isn't it? I mean, I saw a tweet today about innovators as rock stars. Yeah, sure, yeah, rock stars. Moody, self-indulgent, self-destructive and in the long run an expensive distraction and most likely on drugs. The sooner we lose the rock star ninja language from innovation, the better. I think we should concentrate on like the broad, steadily advancing front all moving forward, not the noisy little ones on the odd little spike out in the front of that steadily advancing front. After uh, sleeping on Malcolm Turnbull's nimbling overnight, and let me tell you, it was not comfortable, though it was kind of a little bit erotic. Those 29 ideas that he kicked out on Monday, I thought, fall into three broad categories. First of all, some of them were confirmation of or, in fact, restoration of and only partial restoration of funding that was already there but which had kind of dwindled or been taken away by the rabbit. So we're talking there about things like CSIRO, the, the funding body, which lost 1,400 people and has got part of its funding back and Malcolm Turnbull calls that, you know, more funding for the CSIRO. It's like, yeah, right. Or the Square Kilometre Array, this, this, the SKA, this, this huge and really quite interesting astronomical project in Western Australia. I mean, how many fucking times can the government announce the same thing? It's great that it's happening, but Category 1 of the 29 ideas were really just the things we already had. Category 2 are a bunch of random small ticket items that sound cool, but when you think them through, really don't amount to much. I'm thinking of things like uh, these entrepreneur landing pads for Silicon Valley and Tel Aviv and a couple of other places that have yet to be decided. The idea that if you are leaving Australia to um, launch your company into the great global startup land wankersphere, then 
if there's a place where you can work from and get some support from the Australian government and, and other you know, your peers, that might be a good thing. And they're calling this a landing pad. And they've said there'll be one in Silicon Valley, one in Tel Aviv. And uh, yeah, the Israeli startup scene is huge um, and very clever. And and a couple of others. But, you know, it, it's, it's a few million dollars and, and, and like, you know, it's something like $3 million grants as... Uh, as uh, cranky old man Mike Carlton said the other day, $3 million, all of Silicon Valley will be agog. It's, it's such spendthriftness or some such word. He probably used a proper word, not spendthriftness, because he's a better writer than I am. Um, Yuha uh, Saarinen, the uh, New Zealand-based journalist, pointed out to me that the uh, New Zealand landing pad in, in Silicon Valley is reportedly quite successful. Look, I'd be happy to be proven wrong on this, but I do wonder how success was defined in that article. We will see. But as I say, these are kind of random small-ticket items. And number three... There was a whole bunch of tax and regulatory reforms that benefit a narrowly defined goldfish bowl of innovation, the kind of standard high-risk, fast-growth startups, again. you know. And look, some of the reforms in and of themselves are not too bad, but they're really things that you've got to look at uh, and wonder, gee, these could be, could be rorted, couldn't they? So... You know, it's it's kind of a wish list which the techno utopians of startup land and their gape jawed get rich quick investors got. I mean, they'd be wanting these things. Well, they're they're going to get them. All about this high risk stuff and you know tax write offs and the kind of category one stuff. All of these big ticket square kilometer array CSIRO things are kind of camouflage to show you that really it's about allowing people to kind of take risky investments and have the us, us mug citizens, underwrite the gambling losses. There's a lot of the stuff in the innovation statement about how cool it'll be for those people and funding research that'll lead to industry stuff and creating you know, more cubicle fodder for them because we do have a skill shortage. But there was absolutely nothing about transitioning the rest of Australia's economy and society into this new digital world. It's it's really the trickle-down myth writ large that if we invest in a few high-value star companies, the unicorns, as Silicon Valley has started calling them, what fucking pretentious wanker cunts, then we'll all be better off. You know, innovation is defined really, as these one-in-a-million mega-success stories in money terms and not the kind of innovation that says, say, hey, if we fold that plastic tube a different way, we'll save lives in the operating theatre and it'll cost nothing and no one makes any money, the innovation was a new surgical technique. Or that stuff that's coming out of the third world where you see, you know, some school kid invents a, a $2 way to make a pump and fix the village water supply. That's the stuff that'll make a real difference to humanity. But, you know, no one can make $20 billion off off it, so it's suddenly not interesting interesting to to Daddy Malcolm. (laughs) Given that, and given also that plenty of sane people are saying, it's a bubble, it's a bubble, you know, second dot-com boom, is this really the right time for Australia to get on board that particular bandwagon. I'd like to compare Turnbull's innovation push to the Commission for the Future, which Australia set up in 1985. It was kind of maligned since, but its job, its brief, was to look well ahead, decades ahead, and tackle the whole spectrum of national issues, strategically, things to do with the future. You actually look back and look up Commission for the Future on your handy internet. I believe it's at your fingertips right now. And you will see it was looking in 1985 at issues of climate change, ageing population, changing nature of youth workforces, energy issues, renewable energy, etc., etc., etc. It 
looked ahead to try and solve these things. And, of course, oh, it was all too hard and shut down by the troglodytes in Canberra. Whereas Turnbull's vision is to look at startup land's multi-billion valuations or perhaps overvaluations and think, yeah, how can we get us some of that? You know, partner in Goldman Sachs, remember? Daddy Turnbull is a vampire squid with tentacles and a proboscis. Now, there's nothing wrong with taking care of the economy. I mean, that is part of the Prime Minister's job, right? But it's only part of the job. And startups are a tiny, tiny, weeny, weeny part of that. Tiny, 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 tiny. Now, fetch me some gin, motherfuckers, and yeah, bloody deliver it with a goddamn fucking drone controlled from my iPhone. Well, that's all the edict for now. There's links to some of the things I mentioned on the podcast webpage, or will be when I construct that webpage. You can also leave a comment there, type words, leave an audio comment, do the thing. Further casual verbalings and tongue lashings and two minutes hate, the last batch, I think, will appear in the 2015 Rap Edition episode of this podcast, which will appear sometime between Christmas and New Year. But the next episode of the 9pm Edict will be the 9pm Public House Forum number two, Saturday the 19th in the Salisbury Hotel Stanmore on the internet, Sunday the 20th, with Kate Carruthers and Jazz Twemlow and people to be announced. Until then, I'm Stilgarian. See you later. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.